The psalm before us this morning is the only psalm you'll find written by Moses, that prophet. You'll note it's a prayer, a prayer that Moses wanted taught to Israel, and so he puts it in the form of a psalm. He knew they'd sing those psalms throughout their history time and again. He wanted them to remember the vital issues that he taught in this psalm. Many commentators believe that Moses penned these words at the end of his life, at the end of their wandering in the wilderness, this before God took him home. For 40 years, they had lived in tents, moving from one patch in that barren desert to another at the command of God. That was all because of their folly at Kadesh Barnea. They were confined to live the life of nomads until an entire generation died off in that wilderness. Now, if we could leave Moses just for a moment bowing there before God in prayer and go back in time and retrace the footsteps of the Israelites through the wilderness, we'll, we'll see why, just why he praised this prayer that he did. We come first in our journey to the wilderness of Sinai, where we discover 40 years earlier, now there's these thousands and thousands of bleached bones that jut up from the sand. It was here that God commanded Moses to slay 3,000 Israelites for their idolatrous worship of a golden calf. When God said, you have idol worship is off limits, he meant it. It was here that we find the groaning and moaning and tears that were shed. Imagine how many homes, 3,000 people slain were affected by that sad, sad turn of events. We travel on some, I guess, 40 to 50 miles and come to a place in Scripture called Tabera. Again, we see hundreds and hundreds of graves at that place. The Word of God tells us that the Lord Himself slew these Israelites because they were not satisfied with His gracious provision of manna because they lusted after meat. They grew tired of this manna from heaven. They wanted meat to eat. And while the flesh was yet in their teeth that God sent those quails, He struck them dead on the spot. He gave them the desires of their flesh, but sent leanness to their souls. You want to be careful what you ask God for. We go on in this journey and come to that never forgotten place called Kadesh Barnea. The Israelites are complaining again to Moses for bringing them into the wilderness, and it was here that Jehovah, angered by their rebellion and unbelief declared that their carcasses of the next generation, were, of this generation, were going to fall in the wilderness. They would never be allowed to enter the land of Canaan. And they would never see all the promises brought to pass. Thousands died in the desert. 
And it was here that the Israelites, at the thought of having to go live any longer in that waste-howling wilderness, attempted to go in and conquer the land of Canaan. But it was too late. Hundreds fell at the hands of their enemies at that attempt. God said no. And that was the end of the story. After Kadesh Barnea, our path is clearly marked out by following the grave sites. It seemed that every time Israel broke camp, she left behind a graveyard. I wrote one old divine about Moses. He said, He digged the desert till it became a cemetery, for he lived amid 40 years of funerals. So as we finally come back to Moses and his tent, to the people of Israel as it lies encamped by the Jordan River, we began to understand just, just why Moses was moved by the Spirit of God to pen this psalm. There were certain fundamental truths that Israel needed to learn from God's dealings with her during those wilderness wanderings. And these truths would not only help them, help them to understand the past, what God had done in their past, but prepare them for living in the present and in the years to come. They had endured much hardship. Almost every home had been deeply affected by the miseries of death and the severities of God's judgment in that wilderness. And they were about to face some new challenges. As Joshua was going to say a bit later on, you've not passed this way heretofore. They were going to have to go down a path in life they had not followed. Life in Canaan the promised land was not going to be a bed of roses. They, while the days of wandering were behind them, they had days of warring ahead of them. And Moses knew that they must learn well the lessons of the wilderness if they were going to avoid the same mistakes that they had been faced with and the same troubles that came as a result. The big need is to learn the lesson, lessons. And so Moses pens this psalm to teach those really important lessons for the present and for the future. The first 11 verses make up the first part of this psalm. We could describe them as the contemplation of Moses, and the last six verses, 12 through 17, make up his supplication. Contemplation, supplication. It's not my point to preach through the entire psalm. It's his, it's his supplication that comes out of his contemplation for God's people that I want to focus in on this Lord's Day morning. What's the topic? How the church, any church, should pray when it needs divine intervention. How the church should pray. How the believer should pray when it needs divine intervention. Right now, they needed divine intervention. Moses knew it. 
And so he prays these last six verses. So, first off, how should we pray? Number one, the church should pray for understanding of the brevity of life. It should pray for understanding of the brevity of life. The first prayer request of Moses after contemplating all that he's done about God and these people is found in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. First request. The lessons in the wilderness, as you can understand, have been hard lessons, difficult. They were painful lessons. It hurt. When loved ones die, it hurts. And only those who have lost loved ones know what that kind of pain is. You can understand intellectually, but you have no idea what it's like until you've lost a mother, a father, a child, a spouse. They had experienced that for years. God judged their sin with death over and over again. They never seemed to learn, that generation, never seemed to learn the lesson that obedience in li- is life and, and disobedience is death. Obedience is blessing. Severe consequences come when there's disobedience and rebellion and rejection of God's word. If they'd only learned the solemn lesson that flows from the fact, the fact that life at best is very brief. As the hymn writer put it, like the falling of a leaf. If only. This was a time, as Moses is praying, at the end of the journey, they're about to go into the land of blessing. It's a time when they needed God to intervene. They needed God to bless them and to keep them from making those same mistakes that that previous generation had experienced in that wilderness. And that is why Moses says, so, in light of all of this, in light of what they've gone through, what they've experienced, teach us to number our days in order that we might get this wisdom to live as we ought to live and not go through that again. Teach us, first request, life is brief. That's the point he's been making in, that, in those previous verses, how, how, how little time we have to live here. I, I didn't understand until I got older. God, I should back up. People ask me, how are you doing? I say, I'm getting old. They say, aren't we all, usually in response. I say, yes, but some people have already gotten old. I'm still getting there on the journey. But I find in this growing old, the years seem to fly by. You older people, doesn't it seem that way to you? Time seems to be shorter and shorter. Isn't it strange that it takes us to get to the end of our life before we realize, really realize how brief life is? For the older people, we're looking at everything in the rearview mirror. The bulk of our life is past. 
But you see what Moses is praying, that even the young, uh, young in the land would understand your life is brief. Even if you live to be 70, if you have that strength, yet even there, there's labor and sorrow. So Moses prays to God, save us from the folly that comes in the work of God. When we forget that we are so frail, when we forget that life is brief, that we will all soon die and our work will be done. It's just around the corner. Hard to believe that, isn't it, when you're young? But under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Almighty is coming to us all today and saying, your life is brief. It is but a breath. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. How our lives, how our praying, our interests change when we live in light of eternity and the brevity of life. You know, the, the, the brevity of life, getting that, getting it, if rightly understood, it would have a tremendous impact on the church, on Christians, as they labor in the work of God, as they live their lives in this world. If that would just be something that they would get more and more wisdom on as they seek to live their lives and labor in the Lord's work. Think about it. It would be a relief for those who are sorrowing. You'd reflect upon the fact that, that there is an end coming to this sorrow I'm feeling. There, there's an end. It's not as, I forget the Puritan who said it, but he says, trials and troubles and sorrows may be lasting, but they're not everlasting. Really, when you look at it, they're brief. It seems that when you're in the midst of them all, that they're going on and on and on. But we come back to the reality is life is brief. And so that means our trials and our afflictions and our sorrows and our pains, they're brief as well. If life itself is brief, then there's going to come soon an end to those sorrows and suffering. If we're living in light of eternity. If we're living in the fact that life is brief. We're numbering our days. We're numbering our days. We've done the math. You know what I'm afraid of? Particularly in our own generation. Christians are getting very good at the math when it comes to money. Figuring how to get more of it. Store away more of it. Make more of it. But they've forgotten the most important math, numbering their days. And when you forget that, then the things that go along with seeking for those things on the earth as opposed to those which are above, it makes life really complicated, troublesome, because you haven't prayed, Lord, teach me that my life here is very brief and only what's done for you is going to last. Not the niceness of my home, the expensiveness of my car, top-line clothing, 
IRAs, CDs, I've got X amount of dollars to retire on and have a nice, pleasant life. It won't matter because it's all going to go away one day. You'll be dead and gone. Imagine how numbering our days would enable us to have relief from the sorrows that come in life. It would also revive believing this, getting this wisdom for this. It would revive those who are toiling and rowing. You know what that's like. We've toiled all night and have caught nothing, it said. It's toiling and rowing. We've rowed and rowed. There's a storm blowing, and they hardly had made any progress across that Sea of Galilee. It's like they were going nowhere. You feel like that in the work of God? You're, you're toiling and you're toiling, and it's year after year after year, and you seem to go one step forward and two steps back. Would you feel like that? I have. I've been doing this for over 30 years now, and I understand what it toiling and rowing, not seeming to make any progress in my ministry, in my church, in my spiritual life. Uh, if you just believe that the toiling is going to come to an end one day, this, this world is not the place for rest. It's a place for activity, the place for work, to toil in the Lord's work, to toil. And the word in the New Testament never speaks of something that's easy, it's difficult, it's laborious, it's agonizing, toil and toil and keep pulling the oars and keep pulling the oars and keep pulling the oars. It's hard, but it's only brief. It's only brief. Imagine what it would be like for the church of Christ if she took this prayer to God sincerely, Lord, teach me to number my days. Teach us how brief life is, how it would be a remedy for the frustration and the angst that I find so many believers are having right now over politics and society. Listen. It's soon going to be all over. If, 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 if our days are fixed, they're numbered. That means everything else is numbered because everything else involves people. It's all going to come to an end. And brothers and sisters, we know how this ends. We know how this is going to end. It doesn't matter if it's Biden or Trudeau, whoever they might be in power. I know who's ultimately in power. We know that. No one gets to power apart from God, no matter what office it is. He sets them up, he takes them down. He sets them up, he takes them down. I mean, well, listen, folks, we're, 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 there's this God in heaven who's controlling everything, who's directing all the affairs of life. Nothing is catching him by surprise. It's all part of this great plan. And part of the great plan is a thousand years are like a day. It's brief. It's all going to be over. I need not worry. Don't need to fret, to get anxious, frustrated. 
Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wills in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's what Nebuchadnezzar realized one day when God brought him to his senses. God is doing as he wills in this earth. It's his plan. And it's soon going to come to an end in the light of eternity. Doesn't that make a difference in how you... I mean, I, I, you ever seen people watching the news, Christians, I mean, and getting all upset? Why? Why? Is, is God not reigning over all? God or all forever reigns. Is he not reigning in all these situations? Are the politicians, politicians beyond his power to deal with them? Of course not. We know that up here, but it's believing the truth in here. And so therefore, believing the truth that Life at best is very brief. We, we need to pray that way. That's what comes as we pray when we need divine intervention. Lord, teach us to number our days. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul prayed for? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he had gone through so much. You and I have never had to go through what that man went through. But he said this, Our light affliction... He called it light, which is but for a moment. It's brief. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I'm looking, I have the long view in mind. I'm looking at eternity, and that's how I'm looking at my, they're light, and they're just brief. So, you folks have gone through some trying times lately. Hard. Not denying it. Trials are hard. But you know, they're momentary. They're momentary. They will not last. God is still in the heavens doing whatever He pleases. And whatever he does is right. You pray that way. It just transforms the life. It transforms the attitude, the whole outlook upon life. And not just for the church, but in your own home, in your own hearts. This is not, this is going to pass. And we're going to go on. Because God has said that's what he does. We go on. This is how the church needs to pray when she stands in need of divine intervention. Life is brief. Secondly, the church should remember when she's in divine inter a need of divine intervention that there have always been, and I underscore the, word, underscore the word always, there have always been ebbs and flows in the work of God. Always. Verse 13, again, this is a petition of prayer. Return, O Lord, how long? How long? 
I say that question is very instructive. It indicates that it had been a long, long time since they had seen that smile of God, if I may use the, 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 the language of Scripture, the smile of God upon the work of their hands. The sunshine of His face, cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved, Psalm 80. The clear evidence is that God was actually blessing the work of their hands. It certainly had been a long 40 years in the desert, so it seemed. Hard times and trying times and difficult times. It was a time, you might say, when the tide was out. That's the language we use. The tide's out in the work of God. And Moses is asking God when the tide's going to come in again. That's, that's what he means by how long. When is the tide going to come back in? You find that question repeated so often in the Psalms. Listen to one, two, three, four, five. Just, I just picked out six. Psalm 6, 3. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 35, verse 17. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destruction, my darling from the lions. Psalm 74, verse 10. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Psalm 80, verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? And finally, Psalm 89, verse 6, how long, Lord, wilt thou hide thy face forever? All those verses, and, and many more like them, by the way, reveal that there are times in the Lord's work when he stays his hand of blessing. There are times in the souls of his people he stays his hand of blessing. It ebbs and flows. It may be, it, it may be due to sin, even as it was here in Psalm 90. They, they were, that wilderness was a hard place because he had to judge the sin of the people. But it is often the case where God simply, for reasons other than judgment for sin, holds back the blessing. The tide of blessing is out. It happens in church work. It happens in the, in the lives of individual believers. And it is when the tide is out, when the blessing of God that you expect from the Lord, what He's promised in His Word, is that a low ebb that we cry, how long, Lord, is this going to go on? And certainly part of the reason that God orders these seasons when he no longer, we no longer feel the sunshine of his face is that we might long for him and only him. It's, it's not that we're living in some open, flagrant life of sin. It's just that things have begun to crowd out the Lord. And we go to church and we, we tie their money and we we pray, but it loses its freshness and the desires just really aren't there like they used to be 
And the Lord just says, I'm going to hold back blessing because they just need to miss me right now. Life was just tripping over just nicely for them. And then he draws the hand of blessing. And then we began to miss the Lord eventually. And we can sing with our heart, where is that blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, and sweet their memory still, yet they have left an aching void this world can never fill. Understand what I mean. When the tide is out, you began to miss the Lord. You began to feel your need of the sunshine of his face. You know what it's like when a, a front comes in and you have cloudy days on end, on end, on end. What's it like? You want the sun to shine again. You want to feel the warmth, the brightness. Just a little picture, brothers and sisters, of how it is with us. When we don't see the sunshine of his face, the tide is out, and the Lord rings that about so that we might want that, desire that, pray for that again. There have been times in our own denomination over the 70 years that we've existed when the tide has been out. It's been out for some churches and for others. Large blessings have ebbed away that they once saw. If I can change metaphors, the showers of blessing have changed into mercy drops. It's happened in our churches here in North America. We have seen churches that have had the tide come in and the tide go out. It's all part and parcel to how God governs His church. The thing we want to avoid doing is to conclude that because we're not seeing the same kind of blessing, the same sunshine of God's face that we saw 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that God is not blessing us at all. That's an easy trap to fall into. You fail to see what God is doing. If it's on an individual level, you fail to see what God is doing in your life, the blessing that you do enjoy at His hands, and you begin to focus on the negative. The tide's out, the tide's out. It's all bad, it's all bad, and it's just not so. It's just not so. There are times in our lives as individual believers when we don't hear the singing of the birds, to use the Song of Solomon. And then there are times when it's, well, it's winter. Not only is it not springtime, it is winter. The, the, the hymn writer, John Newton, put it like this in one of his poems, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. 
Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. But when I am happy with him, December's as pleasant as May. Isn't that how it is? December is as pleasant as May. You see, as Spurgeon put it one time in one of his devotionals, God is the great weather king. He's the king of summer in the soul, and he's the king of winter in the soul. All the seasons lie at his control. He orders them, according to his own will in our lives, to work for our good and his glory. So you see this, and I'm not minimizing it when I say it. Please don't take me this, that way. When he orders these rough patches in the work of a church, as you have found, he has ordered it for your good, not for evil, but for your good. You needed this rough patch. I don't know all the reasons why, but you needed it. Do you think he would have sent it otherwise? Not if you believe God does all things according to his own will, does them for his delight, for the good of his people and his own glory. While we would always want to be careful, just like Job, to be careful and search out the reasons why is the tide out, when we first got the phone call in February of 2006, you know, it's a brain tumor. You, you immediately ask the question, what are we doing wrong? What's sin? That's, that's a wise thing to do, you know. But we make a tragic and dangerous mistake to always, always come to the conclusion that there must be something wrong with us or in us that's causing the tide to be out. Maybe we're not, we're not, we're not doing enough. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think is going to happen? When, when, do, when Maybe we're not holy enough. Well, when is that going to, when do you arrive there where you can say, well, I'm holy enough now. We're, we're holy enough now to be blessed. And we're doing enough now to be blessed. When do you get there? And when you, when you if you get there and you say, well, now we are, have arrived, what are you saying? You're so far from the reality, it's not even funny. Because if you were there, you wouldn't be saying, well, I've arrived. I, I've, I, we're doing enough now. And the danger is you, you, when you adopt this thinking and, and you, you forget that there are ebbs and flows in the work of God. You 
you begin to focus upon what you, what you think, what you perceive is the cause for the tide to be out. And, and there's, no, there's no difficulty in finding faults and perfections when you go looking, imperfections when you go looking for them. Consider, you, you know, you don't have to look very far before you find out there's something wrong in my life, right? You, the sins are there facing you every day. So you don't have to look too deeply for that to happen. You, you can find faults. I've never been a church in my life that's doing everything right. I've pastored two churches over 30 years. Never, ever once did we do everything right. Could you find fault? Yeah, there's, there's faults to be found there. But God help us if we think we have to reach perfection before we can expect the tide to come in again. But the fact is, we wouldn't even be engaged in that kind of activity trying to figure out, well, here's this, what's wrong, there's this sin, there's that sin. If the tide of blessing was in, would we? It wouldn't even be in our line of thought. I, I remember the first time, it was this many years ago now, I was in Northern Ireland. I traveled by this, uh, they call it a, a lock, we call it lakes, Strangford Lock. And I went by earlier in the day, and it was really nice. It was beautiful lake, big lake. Uh, on the way to a little fishing village called Port of Ogie. And I came by later, and it was gone. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And all these rocks jutting up and, and seaweed. It wasn't a very pretty sight. Well, I found out it was a sea inlet. And with the tides of the sea, it comes in and fills up, and it goes out when the tide goes out. When the tide was out, all you saw were the rocks and the seaweed. It didn't look lovely, but when the tide was in, it was so beautiful. That's, that's how it is in the work of God, you know. When the tide is out, you tend to put your focus upon all that's wrong. You forget all about the tide that comes in. That's why we pray, how long? How long? Thirdly, briefly, we need to pray to God to reverse our state and bring the tide back in again. Okay, so the tide is out. Right, what, what would you expect? Well, if the Lord's face isn't shining, Lord, cause your face to shine again. If the tide's out, Lord, bring the tide back in again. It's, it's not too hard for you, Lord. We're not too hard for you. The Calgary's not too hard for you. This locale is not too hard for you. Men's hearts aren't too hard for you. Lord, I'm not too hard for you. You can take this lump of clay that needs so much work and make it into a vessel that thou canst use. You can do that because you're God and you can do anything. So, Lord, bring the tide back in again. Reverse the sadness and bring in the gladness. And that's what he's praying about. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. You've, you've brought sadness to us through, through the lack of the tide being, and now, Lord, bring gladness back in. Are you glad? Are you happy? Really? Rejoicing? 
blessing the Lord for all his goodness to you. How faithful he's been to you. He's come with mercies every day to you. You've fallen, you've failed, you've sinned, you've grieved him, perhaps. You may be sitting here with a cold heart this morning, and yet God is still showing you mercy because Jesus Christ died for all those sins. He's still loving you, still caring for you. He hasn't changed. Oh, you have, but he hasn't. Isn't that marvelous? That verse 15 teaches us that God uses the afflictions to prepare us for gladness. He uses the afflictions. He uses those tides being out. He uses the withdrawing of the sunshine of his face to prepare us for gladness. When Zion's bondage God turned back like men that dreamed were we, then filled with laughter was our mouths and tongues with melody. There's nothing like the gladness and the joy of the Lord when you've gone through a time of much sorrow and weeping. Nothing like it. God's way of preparing Job for making him twice as blessed, twice as rich as he was before he took away all that he had. It was those sorrows that came in like a flood. Weeping will often endure for a night in preparation for the joy that comes in the morning. You'll have to have a, wear for a while a spirit of heaviness before there is the garment of praise. The way, you've heard it so often, the way to the crown is going to be through the cross. This world is not about everything being easygoing. It's not about a bed of roses. Shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to then win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Not on your life. And do you see that we can pray and we should pray for God to cause the tide to come back again and give us that gladness in the place of sadness? We should be praying that way. Lord, cause my heart to rejoice again. Lord, you've caused all these tears. You've not held back the grief. Now, don't hold back the sunshine. In fact, we should be, in verse 15, praying that the Lord will measure out the blessing in proportion to the sadness he sent into our lives. Isn't that what he prays? Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. Finally, when the church is standing in need of divine intervention, 
It should pray for the progress of God's work. God's work. Verse 16, let thy work appear unto thy servants. Moses wanted the Lord to work in their midst. He wanted to see God at work, what would be a manifestation, a revelation of his presence among them, working. And you know, that looks like something, folks. When God is at work among his people, when God is at work in your life, it looks like something. When God intervenes in a church, it looks like something. It's apparent that the Lord is moving, the Lord is working. And that's what he's praying for. Let thy work appear unto thy servants. What, really what Moses is praying for is asking for that manifestation of, of God's work amongst his people so that God and his glory would be seen through it. When that takes place in a church, when God actually manifests his glory through the church by working in the lives of his people, I will tell you one thing, others will see it. You can't get away from it. Others will see that glory of the Lord. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the nations might bow down at thy feet, at thy presence. That's why he wanted the Lord to step in and bring the tide in. That the heathen, the heathen, the lost, would be affected by that manifestation of his presence. You think that could happen? Here at Calgary, Free Presbyterian Church. Well, you say in your head, well, nothing was impossible. He can do anything. He's omnipotent. Do you believe it for your church? Is it that he can do it anywhere else but here? If you don't believe that, you won't pray that way. You just won't. Because you're not convinced that God can actually do a work among you, where the, the lost will be found bowing down at his presence. He prays for the beauty of the Lord to be upon them, to clothe them. That word beauty in the original means pleasantness, delightfulness. That's the Lord's beauty. His people become Delightful, pleasant. What is that? It is simply the Lord's glory shining forth through the lives of his people. If I could put another way, if I can just change metaphors for a moment. It's the savor of Christ. There's an odor that's given off, and it's sweet. You smell it. Sometimes you and I stink. Our behavior, our attitudes, our actions don't give off a good smell. 
And when we're like that, people don't want to be around us. We don't have much influence for the Lord's work. But oh, when the Lord is at work, when the tide is in, there's a savor of Christ, a smell of the Lord Jesus, and we're pleasant to be around. People don't try to run away from us, but they actually enjoy being in our company. What's happening? It's just a little bit of the glory of the Lord shining through. That's what he's praying for. Establish the work of our hands. Some of you have been here for years. You've worked and labored and labored and worked. Now, Lord, we've done this for you. Establish the work of our hands. The work of our hands, establish thou it. The Lord must do it. And this is how we pray when we need divine intervention. You need it. I need it. So let's pray that way. God read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we ask that this word would be preached on to the hearts of thy people by the Holy Spirit. There is more than just hearing a sermon that we need, more than just preaching a sermon. We need thee, O God, to burn this message into our souls. We thank thee that thou hast set before us the God, the God of heaven and earth, who has power to do that which men think impossible. Come to thy people here this day and encourage them afresh in the ability of thee to do wonders, to do things which we look not for. Thou art able. And thou hast all the grace that we need to be those workers that thou canst bless. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.